Welcome to Crossing the Chasm. I am delighted to be joined today by Michael Droskovich, who is a social practitioner working to help communities grow together, a proud citizen of the Cherokee Nation. Michael currently resides in Los Angeles and is the co-founder of the Democracy Policy Network, an interstate network working to accelerate the democratic transformation of America. Michael co-led the campaign finance reform effort, Los Angeles for Democracy Vouchers, and the Citizens Assembly Project, Public Democracy Los Angeles. Michael has a master's degree in public administration from the Harvard Kennedy School of Government and an MBA from the MIT Sloan School of Management. He is currently a PhD student in philosophy, cosmology, and consciousness at the California Institute of Integral Studies. And Michael is the absolute perfect guest for the show. He had a lot to say that is of practical value of thinking about how we can have a different kind of world. I really enjoyed the conversation and hope you do as well. Thanks for tuning in. Mike Draskovich, welcome to Crossing the Chasm. Thank you for having me. It's great to have you here. I'm delighted to be speaking with you. Uh, thanks for making time. I want to begin. I've been looking at your background, the work you're doing. It's all extremely interesting. I'd love for you to start by just talking a little bit about how you identify or think about the chasm or chasms in society as they relate to the work you're doing. I think the way that I see it right now, I appreciate you adding chasms, plural, because I do think there's multiple dimensions to this question. Um, the way I've been approaching it, uh, mostly for the past 10 or so years, has been through an institutional lens, which is our public and private institutions are, are not opened up to the participation of people. They're not, you know, lowercase d democratic. And so I see the task of kind of opening up those institutions so everyone, regardless of your background, uh, has the ability to participate and shape our society. So that's on the institutional side. And then this other side, this other dimension, this other chasm is what I would say is on an individual level, um, which plays into how we interact with one another and how we work in community. Uh, whether we work across divides that society tells us are important, how we transcend them. And so that's something I've been developing more recently, really because of the work and the lessons I've experienced over the past 15 years, seeing a need to, you know, teach myself and learn about how individuals can essentially grow in their capacity to reach across the chasm. And so those are the two dimensions I'm seeing right now. I was looking into your work and your background, and you're, you're very interested in democracy and democratic processes. I'm interested, uh, you know, from a global perspective, the United States is seen as sort of the beacon of democracy, and yet here you are working on democracy. So I'm wondering about that. Um, what, in your view, is a definition of democracy, and how do you see democracy in the U.S.? Wow, yeah, so... I think one always needs to look at oneself first before we make a judgment on something. And I think that for me, my personal journey with democracy, I don't think I was thinking critically about it until my mid twenties or so when I was working in Washington DC for an advocacy organization 
and saw how laws were made, saw how policy was created. Coming from Los Angeles, where as a high schooler, I had an opportunity to participate in my local neighborhood council. Los Angeles is one of the few jurisdictions in the country that has a neighborhood council system. And while there's a host of issues with the system, it does allow for local neighborhoods to get together and to talk about what they want their communities to look like, to provide input to the city, to the state. Um, And so I had that experience when I was very young and it was really messy. But at the same time, you saw the promise of, you know, folks getting together and solving the problems together. And so I go to Washington, D.C., and I start to see that there's less of that participation. There's less of that grassroots element. It's a lot of professional, uh, credentialed policy experts kind of formulating policy on their own outside of movements within these institutions. And that led me to really think critically about how our laws are made and which voices are playing a role in their construction. And so um, that was a big experience for me in wanting to go to school to learn more about democracy, to, to meet other people who are working on lowercase d democratic policy ideas, and then to start to, to work on some of those ideas in my own community back here in Los Angeles. And so, um, you know, I think if we, it's really hard for us to say with a straight face that we're a democratic nation if our institutions in our own backyards are hardly themselves democratic. And so for me, it was starting at that point, looking at Los Angeles and our city, at our charter, uh, at our neighborhood councils, as all venues that could be made more democratic as a way to bring more people into the process and starting there. Can you say a bit more about, I'm really interested in your thoughts on that. What do you see as some of the interventions that are needed or conversely, what are the ways in which the local uh, governance is not as democratic as you think it should be? Well, I think campaign finance is a huge challenge right now. We're seeing unlimited you know, dark money flowing into our local elections. Um, just here in Los Angeles, we have a campaign finance system we have a we have a public uh, a matching funds system, which is good because it amplifies small dollar donors, but it still requires people to have a level of disposable income in order to participate. So, already, you know, the most important institution that that uh, you know helps run our elections and helps you know. Uh, flow money into them is already very exclusionary. And so for me, I think, what does a democratic campaign finance system look like? What, what could that look like? Well, 2017, Seattle offered its answer to that question by passing a democracy vouchers program uh, where every resident in the city is issued for $25 vouchers that they can spend on any local campaign. And it's done a remarkable job democratizing the donor pool, 
you no longer need money to contribute to a campaign. Anyone can contribute, which means more people can run for office, especially from communities that have historically been disenfranchised or haven't had connections to wealthy fundraising networks. And so it's allowed more voices to participate in the process. That's, that's what I think, you know, one way to think of democracy within a, within a specific institution. Um, another one that we're working on in Los Angeles, and we just started about a year ago, is uh, around citizen assemblies or resident assemblies, deliberative bodies made up of ordinary residents of a city or state who are selected at random to participate. And they're given a mandate to develop a policy or a set of solutions for a pressing public problem. And the body is structured so that it's representative of the population along certain demographic lines like race, gender, the language spoken at home, etc. And so we've seen these institutions in Europe have a remarkable effect on, you know, creating good, sound policies. So just as an example, Ireland in 2012 formed a constitutional convention made up of randomly selected Irish citizens. There were 66 of them out of a body of 100. And that body then evolved over the years, but led to the introduction of legalization of marriage equality and of reproductive rights uh, at the constitutional level in Ireland. And so it's really remarkable when you have these people, you have all these viewpoints come in a room, be able to deliberate over laws rather than it just being solely the experts and the political, you know, the politicians deciding uh, with advocacy groups on the side and big money donors trying to influence it, you create a space where people can come together to have those conversations and really see eye to eye and see how, you know, we can ensure that our laws uh, account for everyone's diverse viewpoints. So that's another, another way we're thinking about democracy beyond voting, beyond just, you know, what happens every other year or so at the voting booth. Yeah, and I want to talk more about those examples in a little bit. I think they're super interesting. I, I want to ask you about, I was following uh, LA politics and there was an election, you know, for Congress, a longtime member was stepping down. This was a few years ago. And in the primary, the number or the proportion of people voting was like like 18% or something. And so I want to ask you about your thoughts on just the ways in which average citizens engage with politics, governance, democracy, and and how you could get more people involved. Do you see it as you need to have more people involved who then create these robust policies you're talking about? Or do we have to have some more robust policies that then get more people engaged? How do, how do you see that? I mean, I see it as we need both. We need more people. We need policies that open up our institutions to more people. And then we need more people taking a look at co-creating policies together. So I don't think there's a linear sequential way about this. We have to start with whatever resources we have and just know that that's good enough for where we are. So, you know, ideally the city opens up, creates a citizens assembly or residence assembly here to solve an issue. Well, we may have to do that privately. We may have to do that funded by various foundations or NGOs to get the 
to, to kickstart the idea and to demonstrate to people that it works. Your point about, you know, a fraction of Angelinos or anyone in any election voting for something really should raise the question of a legitimacy problem we have with a lot of these institutions. Sure, you know, a candidate wins the majority of votes, but if that majority is less than 10% of the total population, what does that mean to us? What does that say to us? And this isn't to say, you know, everything should be torn down. I'm thinking more constructively, you know, how do we think about participation? How do we, how do we want our institutions to empower people to participate? I like to think that public participation is one of the most important forms of participation, but it's not the only, you know, we also have the economic sphere and our people, you know, do they have access to capital, do they have access to accurate, you know, true wages that reflects their cost of living and their dreams. Um, also the cultural sphere, the same thing. Do people feel that they have the freedom to start clubs and, you know, practice their faith or religion freely? So I see participation along a lot of these dimensions and, uh, but public participation is, I think what we're all recognizing right now needs our attention and needs solutions and energy poured into it. I think it's really interesting that you're working on sort of this higher level democracy. And then in your last answer, you just mentioned some specifics around wages or access and so forth. And so I'm wondering if you could speak a little bit to how you and the organizations you're working with interface with more specific groups around issues. That is to say, how do you see collecting these people amongst a network that's all moving forth in the same direction towards democracy and meeting these other goals? The way we approach it, and this is, you know, the way we've approached it, the Democracy Policy Network, is we kind of started with the facts, which are there are there are tons of amazing ideas already out there. You know, my co-founder Pete often says the world we dream of already exists, but it exists in piecemeal. It exists in various cities or various states, or these ideas for economic transformation, for example, or racial justice transformation exist in in pockets of the country. They just haven't been flushed out. They haven't been spread. They haven't been tried and experimented on in more places. The way we've gone about it is, you know, just accepting that these ideas are out there and there's, of course, disagreements and, you know, people have different priorities for what ideas they want to work on. And we accept all of that as true. We're not trying to prioritize one thing over the other. Although I think in some areas, you could probably make a strong case, you know, to focus on, say, campaign finance reform. And because a lot of things flow downstream from that. But these aren't mutually exclusive items. Our, our objective has been to find the really interesting ideas and amazing people behind them, give them a platform to raise them up, to help flesh out their ideas, and then to get them in front of people who are you know, energize to bring new ideas into the discourse, whether it's at their city, uh, city hall, or their state house, or even the federal government, or their businesses. We've worked on a four-day work week bill that was introduced in Maryland last year that, you know, could be taken up in many corporations right now without legislation. So legislation is one tool we have, but we also, I think it's important to recognize, especially if you're in the policy space, to remind folks that we have these powers already. You know, 
um, to raise wages, for example. Uh, a lot of companies can do that right now if they, if they chose to. So the, our task is really starting the conversation, bringing these people together, disseminating their ideas, and then going where there's interest. And so we, we follow where there's a, you know, advocacy campaign ready to go on an idea or a state legislator or a legislative staffer at a state house who's ready to go on an idea. And we've done that pretty well over the past uh, couple of years. Like I said, working on four-day work week, we've also worked on public banking, uh, restorative justice, public pharma, democracy vouchers, and a few other big ideas. So very excited about that. Oh, those are exciting. And again, I want to get to some of those in a minute. Uh, other question I wanted to ask you is that you're mostly focused, it sounds like, in the Los Angeles area, but you're clearly connected and supporting people elsewhere. Can you just speak to the situation we have in this country where we have these different le- levels and scales of governance and the extent to which, yeah, you're, you're focusing mostly on the local level. Can you just speak to the local level and why you're focusing a lot of your attention there? I chose to focus at the local level because I think it's where we have the most power as individuals wherever we live to affect the you know, direct circumstances around us. Federal government has enormous power and um, should also be part of our political strategies. But it, oftentimes I feel that it can be the only strategy or the only lens with which we view politics, especially our local politics. And so, you know, a lot of folks, you know, struggle to name their local representatives or their city council members. And that's totally okay, you know, because we've grown up in a society that said our politics is all, is all national. But the, the opportunities that exist to really start to change things and to create a culture, you know, a different civic culture where things are, democratized and people are empowered, really, I believe, is going to need to get started at the local level. And, you know, a lot of folks think, you know, with all the curriculum battles that are happening right now, those are school board fights, which is a local or county level position in many, many states. And so we're, we're, we're being called to work on those ideas at the local level. You know, the department, the federal department of education is not tasked nor should it be tasked with setting uh, curriculum standards. In my opinion, that should be something that every community is always, every community, every generation is always awakening to this question. What are we teaching? What do we want our children to be learning? And how do we, you know, ensure that they're thoughtful, critical public citizens? So I think that's where we're seeing that gravity, the center of gravity shift a little bit. And uh, of course, it doesn't help that we have a, a media environment that keeps telling us we have to only care about what's happening at the level of the presidency. And that's definitely important. But I think there's, there's many other opportunities for people to have an impact at the local and county and state level. You know, I'm, I really I want to move on to the, um, the second part of this, which is about all the interventions and fleshing those out. But before we do that. You know, as you've made clear, a lot of people aren't involved, but you have devoted a fair amount of your time and energy over your life to engaging these issues. And I'm just curious if you could speak to, yeah, how do you feel about that? Like, what, what's your lived experience, given all the constraints and the ups and downs? How do you feel about the, the, the efforts you put in and how has it, how's it changed your life? 
I think it's deeply enriched my life. I've learned a lot about myself and others through this work. I think I was always intrinsically called to do this type of work. I, it, it never felt that I had a series of, of experiences that um, drew me in, although I, you know, growing up in certain communities with certain identities, those experiences definitely became relevant. But I think even before I knew about myself and my identities, it was about wanting to serve others and wanting to do what I can to, you know, help co-create a shared world together where we all feel like we belong. So I think it starts there, but over time, you know, I've met some of my, my best friends and incredible partners in life in, in this work. And what I love about it is it's never static. It's never solid. It's always evolving. It's always growing and new information, new ideas, new people. And it's just a reminder this work continues to, to grow and evolve over time. And we're, you know, I think we've all seen over the past five years, how social movements and philanthropy and all this stuff is, all these institutions are attempting to become much more inclusive. Um, I think that's incredible. And I can only imagine what the conversation is going to be like in another five years when we can reflect on the progress and limitations of what we've been through. But uh, yeah, I would say, you know, it, it's that it, it's just come from a very personal source. And I, it's hard to even put words on it, but I just knew that I wanted to spend my time in this way. Thank you for sharing. I appreciate that. Uh, and I want to shift now to the the actual on the ground changes. And and before we get to the specifics, you know, a lot of people in our society just say, you know, people can't do anything. The the powers that be are too strong. There's no possible way we could change anything. How do you respond to people when they when they say that? I like to ask questions about their involvement and not to make them feel ashamed or anything, but to just point out that there's so many opportunities lying in front of them to become a, a more optimistic or constructive participant in society. And so I think, um, and I've been there myself, so I know when you view, you know, when everything is viewed through the prism of national politics and there's doom and gloom, this is very real. I mean, we're seeing just absolute, you know, atrocities on the international scale happening and violence and distrust and hatred and these are, these are all happening right now. And what I've tried to do is to acknowledge that and to transmute it into the opposite force in the most proximate way in my life, which is where I live in, in my immediate community. And so, you know, it's, it's, it's recognizing that I, there's not much I can do outside of calling my representative protesting for a ceasefire right now in Gaza, but I can take the hatred I'm seeing and the violence and I can transform that into acts of service and compassion in my own community and know that it's born out of the pain and the suffering that I've seen, that it's, it's, it's drawing its necessity from that. Um, and then I think people become hopeful once they begin acting. It's often said that we become, you know, hope inspires action, but I actually think it's the other way. You know, if you ever started a workout regimen, you know, 
after a long time away from the gym or something, you know that you're really inspired the, the day after your first workout because you're like, wow, like that felt great. You know, I can do that more. I could see myself doing this. That's the type of mindset I think we should try to encourage people to get to is just try something small. Just try something little. Write something constructive to your representative. Reach out to a neighbor about a problem you're facing in your community. Uh, go to a city hall meeting or, you know, if you live near the state house, go, go to a state house meeting. Those are the baby steps, I think, which are really important and generative. And I think they'll lead to a, just more engagement. And then you'll start to see that I think you can reflect and see the ways in which before those baby steps, the world seemed like it was falling apart, but it was really because in many cases, it's so hard to know what to do and to know that we have all these places like in our own backyard that are crying out for people like you to, to, to contribute your gifts and your talents. It's really, you know, there's just so much that can be done. Um, so Yeah. You know, one thing that seems really inspiring to me and super exciting is the this notion of public assemblies, citizen assemblies. And that just seems like it'd be a really great way to get people excited, but also to give them something to actually do. Can you just speak a little bit more about what these assemblies are and how they operate? They're called in Europe citizens' assemblies. And what they are is they're a, a body of residents from a city or state or selected by democratic lottery, and they're then tasked with a mandate to come up with policy solutions or make recommendations on a particular issue to a government body. And so what you have is essentially a city or a country in one room, and they meet several times over the course of a year, to be shorter depending on the issue, but I know the examples that we're looking at for Los Angeles, they've been year-long engagements. And these are people that don't have a background in politics or policy. And when they come into this room, they're in charge. They get to decide which experts to hear. They get to decide, you know, how long to take to deliberate on a particular issue. And we see many of them go through this process and they come out the other side as informed and engaged and uh, ready to advocate for what they've learned some ways the whole policy making process has been demystified for them. So to give you an example, a few years ago, France had a national citizens assembly on climate where they asked 150 French citizens to come up with national policy recommendations on climate change for the country. And these were, you know, some people had never thought about the environment really critically before. And so for them, it was a little intimidating to have to you know, sit in these presentations with experts going over you know, greenhouse gas emissions and uh, travel and all of this, how they're contributing to, to the worsening of our planet. And by the end of the process, they came up with a hundred, this group of people that had never met before and weren't climate experts came up with a list of 149 policy recommendations that were really ambitious. And they themselves were transformed through this process. So I already mentioned that they felt they didn't need to be intimidated 
by the subject matter, the material, that they could understand and ask questions and work with experts. And then they felt that they, you know, were in a way kind of energized by their knowledge and their confidence in, in, in this material to advocate for the policies that the, that the French uh, national government. Now, interestingly, what happened was uh, in this example, and I'm not an expert in it, but what I've understood is the French President Macron promised initially before the assembly uh, was in place that he would pass whatever policies were recommended. But because the policies were so ambitious, and you know, this isn't a far left thing. You had conservatives, you had far right and far left people. You, again, it was a it was a country in a room, so it was a representative body of French citizens who decided collectively that these were the policies that make most sense for the, all the French people. And yet the policies were too, too, too ambitious for the president that he uh, backed off of his promise to implement all of them and only implemented a few. But over the subsequent years, a number of those other reforms, such as the, the banning of short-haul flights, which was really significant, uh, have taken effect. So we've, we've seen kind of it reverberate over time which has been really exciting. I'll also mention another another French example, which is uh, Paris has a permanent citizens' assembly where every year new residents of the city are brought in to serve in a citizen assembly, and they have powers to propose questions to the city council to propose legislation for an up or down vote. Uh, they also have powers to kick off a research like a. a an investigative or research assembly to look into an issue of public concern. So we're seeing some elements of governance be transferred in a way into this new body, which is really exciting. Uh, but my favorite example of all is the one I mentioned at the top in Ireland, which was these citizen assemblies helped, you know, the country talk about it was historically, you know, very conservative Catholic country deliberate over issues of women's reproduction rights and marriage equality. And you can imagine this is a very sensitive cultural issue, but because the citizen assembly says, Hey, everyone's voices are important to all necessary. Um, we need you to come together and figure out what you want to do as a country to, uh, on these issues. They heard from women, they heard from doctors, they heard from faith leaders. And in the end, they were, they were able to say, you know, uh, these, you know, the, the right uh, same-sex marriage and women's reproduction, reproductive freedom should be enshrined in the Constitution. And uh, it was then, you know, those are the recommendations that went to the parliament, which then um, the national government, which then went to a referendum and passed with, uh, uh, with majority. So really exciting to see what happens when you kind of get the politicians out of the way, so to speak, and let your everyday people talk about these issues. And so that's, we're really excited to bring this idea to Los Angeles. We've been working on it for a year now. We're right now, our, our mission here is to introduce one on an issue of broad public concern by 2026. And we just had actually this week our first uh, advocacy win where um, the city is currently looking at a charter reform commission to kind of revise our city's governing documents. 
And there, we have a chief legislative analyst with the city whose job is basically to conduct research for the council members. And the chief legislative analyst was asked to come up with best practices for a charter reform commission. Well, we sent them a letter, a coalition letter saying, we hope you can consider citizens' assemblies as a way to increase public participation, representation, and public trust in a charter review process. And our, we gave them a list of precedents of a number of successful citizens' assemblies across the world. And um, uh, our letter and our recommendation was included in the report that was just published on Monday to city council. So we're really excited about continuing that. We're hoping that, you know, our charter reform commission, if not this next one, uh, but the one after that will look like a citizen's assembly. That's really exciting. I'm wondering about the scale of these. Do you think a citizen's assembly could work on a smaller scale, a smaller town, for example, and are there any examples you could point to? Yeah, there's a few. So just in Petaluma, California, um, I believe last year or the year before, they had a citizens' assembly on their fairgrounds. So there was a, a question about what to do with their the fairgrounds in the city, what purpose um, uh, to put it to use over, and and you know whether it's going to be housing or entertainment or something like this. And instead of doing a traditional public comment process where people show up to meetings, speak at a mic for a minute or two minutes at a time. Um, they formed a citizens assembly, which got together for, I want to say almost a half a year and put together a series of recommendations, various proposals that they felt the city would be open to. And so that's just a, a local example. Other ones have been, um, like I mentioned that Paris has their permanent assembly there. I know there's similar ones in Belgium and in Milan. Yeah, no, they are, uh, they can be done at any scale. We're also seeing people looking just at sortition, which is the, the mechanism of selecting people at random, also known as democratic lotteries. There's folks looking at using that tool to also refresh, say, leadership within organizations. So sort of like the initial selection process for jury duty, where you receive a letter, you would be asked to serve in some sort of leadership capacity or advisory capacity for leadership at a company or a union or cooperative or what have you. I think that's really exciting too, because it suggests it's not just an idea for the public sector, but it can be something that that can be taken up in, in any institution to ensure there's new voices, new perspectives, and just more greater levels of participation. Oh, that's, that's really interesting. Thank you. I also wanted to ask you about one of the other examples you mentioned earlier on in the Seattle uh, example in particular, which has to do with democracy vouchers. And I'm wondering if you could just speak a little bit more about democracy vouchers and what role you think they could play in, in strengthening our democracy. So I think democracy vouchers are really important if we're serious about democratizing all aspects of the, the public sector. Um, campaign finance plays such a big role in who gets elected uh, what issues are on the table, what issues get introduced um, in the halls of power. And so democracy vouchers helps open up that initial institution responsible for the funding of our our campaigns. And so Seattle's past introduced the program in 2017. And 
the way it works there is everyone, every resident gets four $25 vouchers that they can donate to any campaign, local campaign in the city. And those campaigns then redeem those vouchers for public funds to fund their campaign. And um, we've seen a few things. I've already mentioned the diversification of the donor pool. There used to be a statistic where um, before democracy vouchers, you could predict quite accurately whether someone was going to be a donor or not based on whether their home had a view of the water. Uh, so that was a very wealthy area, largely white area. And that was funding local campaigns. Um, we see similar uh, statistics like that here in Los Angeles. After democracy vouchers, that's no longer the case. As of 2023, I believe, although it might be 2021, uh, yeah, I believe it was 2021. As of that election in 2021, the donor pool is now reflective of the general voting population. There's no more, so it's representative along lines of age, race, income, and geography. So with one policy, they've managed to ensure that there's now institutional representation of every community in, in the campaign finance system. So that's on the donor side. On the candidate side, we've now seen more people run for office specifically from communities that have uh, been disenfranchised or that have had a harder time accessing funds to run competitive campaigns. Uh, we've seen advocates connected to housing uh, issues in Seattle run successful campaigns, often raising money from the uh, uh, unhoused residents of the city to make a point that your voice is important just as, uh, just as others are. And so you see kind of this, this, this entrance of more voices and more people because you no longer need connections to wealthy fundraising networks. Uh, but probably the most exciting part of democracy vouchers, the reason really why our heart is in this policy idea is on um, public participation. You, when someone, you know, when someone comes to your door and asks you, you know, for your democracy dollars and gives you the pitch of their campaign, you all of a sudden, and, and you give them your democracy dollar, you, something happens to you. You feel invested. You feel like you are, you know, co-creating the city in some way. And so we've seen that play out in the uh, voter voting data where those who have used the democracy vouchers, uh, the, the democracy voucher are six to 10 times more likely to vote. And so it's a huge, huge uh, catalyst for voter participation as well. And I think that's what's most important is people's whole mentality change. It, it changes and they see themselves as participants. Um, and just to make sure that, you know, folks don't think this is only a, a liberal lefty idea out of Seattle, it's actually passed by ballot initiative in 2016 in South Dakota. Um, but because uh, that was when, you know, of course, Trump was on the ballot then, but because South Dakota is one of the few states that has non-binding uh, citizen, you know, initiatives uh, rules, they, the, the state house called an emergency session and overturned the, the law. So unfortunately it doesn't exist there, but it shows us that this idea can travel across the traditional partisan boundaries. So very exciting idea. We're seeing, you know, campaigns, Minneapolis was considering it in their legislative package last year. 
and um, Los Angeles has been working on it. You know, Oakland passed their program a year ago. And so we're seeing more and more, and there's a serious campaign in New Hampshire. Um, you know, there's all sorts of exciting movement on this. One thing I will say is, you know, a lot of places are also considering matching fund programs like we have here in Los Angeles. And I would encourage you if that's what's you know right for your city or state to go with that. Any public uh, public financing is better than no public financing. We've chosen democracy vouchers simply because we want we don't want disposable income to be you know the requirement of a disposable income to be um, uh, to be required to participate in the campaign finance program. But uh, yeah, so that's that's what we're seeing on the campaign finance front from a, a lowercase d democratic standpoint. Oh, it's really interesting, and I appreciate these explicit examples. One other one you mentioned that I'm kind of interested in is this notion of public banking. Can you speak to that at all? Sure. I'm not an expert in public banking, but you know what it does is, um, and why we think it's important for cities and states to consider, essentially creates a publicly owned and operated bank in place of the you know multinational banks that are largely responsible for managing our public funds. And they charge private market interest rates and all sorts of fees that are, you know, rack up to millions of dollars. And that's money that could be put to better use if you had an institution that did not have the pressure of Wall Street, you know, or shareholders uh, wanting them to maximize profits. And so um, there's been a movement here in Los Angeles. Uh, you know, the, the, uh, there's only one public bank in the country, or there's been only one. I know there's several starting soon, um, or there's campaigns to get them going soon here in California. But the Bank of North Dakota uh, is, has been around since, well, I want to say, over 100 years and um, is really successful in what it does and is respected and favored by the cities or the, the, the states politicians and voters. And so, um, yeah, that's another one. It helps, it can help democratize finance for various community initiatives. It can help, you know, expand infrastructure and capacity of the city by offering loans at a lower rate. So there, and then, you know, any revenue it generates gets poured back into the coffers of the city. That's really interesting. So I want to ask you about, you know, if a listener is tuning in and and excited about this, but they're in a place where none of this is happening and they can't see anything happening in their local community, what what would you tell someone, uh, you know, in terms of what they could do or how they could think about moving some of these things forward and getting involved? Well, I'd say that it's up to you, you know, if nothing, if nothing's happening, you don't see these things happening and you want them to, that is, a sign that you're meant to do it. You're the one to start the conversation. So that is a, an immense opportunity. And, uh, you know, the first thing I would say you do is you, you share the idea with a few of your friends and you see who's interested in working on this and you start having more conversations. Um, really the basic unit of all politics is the conversation and so the more of those you're ha- having both, you know, one-to-one with individuals or organizations, but also you can host community briefings on the idea, invite experts in from other states and cities to talk about the idea, start drafting up, you know, legislation or letters, start 
forming relationships with your city council member or your state legislators. That's, that's really what it looks like. And, you know, I would say for those who are like intimidated by that idea, I would only say that these people are very accessible. They're very open, more open than we think, especially at the local level. Uh, they'll likely have read your email. And so the more you can position yourself as a help and a constructive piece, uh, wanting to get them information to introduce something, the more quickly an idea uh, can move. It doesn't, you know, that doesn't negate the, the reality that there's power politics involved. At some point, you have to figure out, you know, how many votes you got and how many people you can turn out to vote and whatnot. But at the, at the initial stage, the goal should just be getting the idea out there, showing people how it can solve a concrete problem they have in their lives, and then doing whatever you can to, to, to push that idea to more people in your community. Thank you. I think that's very persuasive. I appreciate that. Uh, I, I end these uh, interviews with three questions that I ask uh, of all guests, and uh, you've already answered the first one a little bit, but I want to ask it anyway. What do you see in society that gives you inspiration and energy? You know, I see this every day. There's little campaigns getting off the ground in cities and states, people that are deciding that they want to get involved and they want to contribute and they want to be part of co-creating a new America where everyone's voice is heard. Um, That's what is so inspiring to me. I think um, there was a, uh, during the, um, the height of the pandemic, I want to say that it was a, my memory's a little hazy on this, but Newsom, or Governor Newsom here asked Californians to uh, reduce their electrical out, output because we were facing an energy crunch in the grid. And uh, he just asked, there's no law, he just asked, hey, can we, can we watch out? Um, can we, you know, limit our, our energy output? And Researchers looked into whether that had an effect, and it turns out a bunch of people did it voluntarily. And that, to me, was always a, such a powerful picture. People hearing something, you know, we, hey, we need to look out for each other. We need to reduce our energy output. Uh, what can I do? What can I do to contribute? And a lot of people did what they could. And so it's just a reminder that, yes, policy is needed. We need to think in terms of laws and institutions. But we also can think in terms of hearts and souls and what people would do on on a voluntaristic basis. And I think having both of those things in mind is really important as we we go into and try to cross the chasm together. Thank you. I appreciate that. Uh, The second question is, I'm wondering if you have heard or read or listened to or seen anything recently that has really made you think differently or or more deeply about the, the interests you have that you're working on. I think it was an article about a group of Israelis and Palestinians who were getting together in Gaza, I believe, and they were practicing just shared community and celebrating each other. And it was not, you know, it, it sort of transcended the rhetoric we see. And that just really was beautiful. It reminded me it's possible, even amidst all this tragedy and war and violence, for people to still recognize the humanity in one another. And so that was a, a real beautiful uh, moment to see. Thank you. 
And then the last question is, you know, you're working on these issues. It can be overwhelming. It can be depressing, frustrating. What gives you a sense of peace and joy on a day-to-day basis? Well, I would say, you know, my meditative practice helps me engage people in ways that give me a sense of peace and joy. And so I try to see every interaction of mine as an opportunity to cultivate that, to see the best in everyone and to, to really, you know, try to spend the hours of my day as best I can towards the ends we've been talking about. So, um, but I think it all starts with a, you know, with my, with my meditative and spiritual practice. Uh, thank you so much for sharing. I really appreciate that. And, and thank you for coming on the show. It's been great chatting with you. Thank you, Brian. When I was first thinking about creating this podcast, I wanted to have people on who could speak to a different kind of society, and Michael did just that. I was so impressed and interested and engaged with what he had to offer, both the big conceptual questions and ideas about our society, but also the practicalities of what we could actually do to move forward to have a better world. It was just delightful to have him on the show and to hear his thoughts, and I'm really grateful for his time. I want to thank the executive producers of Crossing the Chasm, Dan Phillips and Cody Bayless. I want to thank Anne and I in Diversion for the music. And as always, I want to thank you all for tuning in. I really appreciate it and hope you enjoyed the conversation as much as I did. I hope you can tune in again another time. 